The Energy Gang is sponsored by Renasola, a top manufacturer and supplier of clean energy equipment, including solar modules, inverters, energy storage, and efficient lighting. With 40 worldwide subsidiaries, the company offers one-stop shopping for all your equipment needs, with next-day delivery. You can see the entire list of Renasola's offerings available coast-to-coast at renasola.us. For the week of June 19th, 2015, this is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Green Tech Media Senior Editor Stephen Lacey behind the mic in Washington, D.C. This week, we have a wide-ranging conversation with one of the most prolific and thoughtful writers in the business, David Roberts of Vox, formerly of Grist. Then we'll talk about Pope Francis, who just wrote a very powerful encyclical on the environment and climate change. And we'll round up the show by discussing why new concentrating solar power plants are underperforming here in the U.S. We'll also tell you something you don't know to finish up. To start, let me bring in my two co-hosts, Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shah. Catherine's a partner with 38 North Solutions here in Washington, D.C. How are you? Doing great. Thank you. Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital, based in New York City. He's usually at home base, but today we've caught him in a library. Jigger, what has you in a library? I am here with my two nieces at the Orland Park Public Library. <laughs> so you <laughs> you just told your nieces, like, here, go go look at some books, and I'm, I have to record this Yeah, show. well, their grandfather's here, too, so I've, they've, they've got supervision. Okay, that's good. Uh, our guest this week is from Seattle, He's based in Seattle, where he's probably live-tweeting the show and writing an article explaining some obscure regulatory topic using cute animal pictures as he does the interview. It is David Roberts, the longtime staff writer at Grist, who is now writing for Vox and doing some very good stuff there. David, welcome to the show. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on. So uh, in 2013, you took, took a year for, away from the Internet, and you wrote this awesome piece for it about it for Outside Magazine. And I'm curious how you felt when you came back to the internet world and realized that the debate around energy policy had become civil, that there was no more, <laughs> there was no more disinformation on climate change. I mean, it, it must have been so hard having nothing to write about when you came back. You, you know, it's, um, I expected actually everything to be exactly the same when I came back since, you know, I had been doing it for 10 years before I took a year off. And it very little had <clears throat> changed over those 10 years, but, you know, actually uh, things are, I found that things are, are moving faster and there's more going on than I thought. There was more interesting new stuff to write about than I thought there would be. What's most interesting you, to you right now? Are you talking about like climate policy or the specifically clean tech growth? Well, or I'm talking about clean tech and I think, you know, I've, I've said for, for years that it's going to be the growth of clean tech that ultimately forces the climate policy question. And I sort of think we're seeing, uh, we're seeing the, the early stages of that happening, you know, clean energy getting so cheap that it's starting to shift the politics, mainly at the state level. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I want to talk about the national politics. Um, you know, you, you write a lot about the national politics and there's a push underway to get Republicans to talk about, uh, climate. South Carolina Republican Lindsey Graham just joined the race. And so far, he's kind of the only one talking openly and directly about climate change. And reporters are all over it. They're playing up the story as if Senator Graham is going to be a savior for the climate. Why do you think 
we in the press are so eager to run with a storyline like that. Well, well don't he, forget George Pataki. <laughs> Everybody forgets George Pataki. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, you know why we run with it, because we're in, in our particular corner of the news world. We're just desperate for news. We're desperate for the we're desperate for mainstream politicians to even mention our issue, much less discuss it in any depth. So when one of them mentions it, you know, there's 40 climate journalists that descend upon the story and ring ring all the possible meaning out of it. But, uh, you know, I don't think Lindsey Graham, you know, if you followed Lindsey Graham since, um, he's not exactly making climate the, the signature issue of his campaign. That's not why he's running. Well, you know, Dave, you had this really long blog post that you wrote about how in the 1970s, the foundations thought that they could just educate people to better policy. And so today, that strategy just doesn't work, right? And so, I mean, what do you think the strategy is that works today? Well, the the broader context of that post was um, polarization in the U.S., political polarization, which I think a lot of people still have not really fully come to grips with I think that there's a lot of people who still think that polarization is just a sort of Washington DC phenomenon that is just uh, about too much money in politics and that there's still this mass of sort of moderate centrist people out in the country who aren't having their needs met and I just think that's wrong basically I think that the the polarization in in the in the capital reflects polarization in the country and at this point the 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 US conservative movement has become an identity movement and part of that identity is opposing uh anything that democrats support that might indicate the need for more government programs you know more taxing or spending or or regulating so you know, this sort of endless quest for the bipartisan or transpartisan or postpartisan climate message that's going to unite everyone behind sensible policy uh, is, I think, uh, uh, fruitless, has been fruitless and was always fruitless. But I hope I hope now that everybody is, is acknowledging that it's fruitless. So, so, you know, what's the alternative? What's the alternative strategy other than coming together? And joining hands, the other strategy is to beat the other side. <laughs> if you can't win them over, you beat them. You know, this is like this is something that you don't have to explain to any Republican. But for some reason, on the left, Democrats, the whole idea of of winning as opposed to sort of transcending partisan battles is still a little, I think, alien to them. But you know, you find areas where this wall of Republican opposition has cracks in it, which is usually going to be in cities or states, you know, because the, 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 federal, the federal situation is just frozen right now. But there are places where you can find cracks in the wall and you concentrate on those cracks and wedge them open wider and win those little victories. You can win and gain momentum from those victories until they're overwhelmed, until the the power behind clean energy and climate is is scares them to the point where they have to come around on it. You're not going to persuade them, but you might be able eventually to scare them. 
So David, is there potentially though another option, which is, I was, for example, last night in Richmond at an event, a PAC event, and there was a very liberal senator, uh, state senator, a very right-wing delegate, and yet they they agreed on clean energy. They probably disagree on almost everything else. Is there another path where you don't come together, but you you row in the same direction, maybe for completely different reasons, but at least you're going in the same direction. So is there a way that, you know, just as the Green Tea Party has kind of come together with the left wing in Georgia, like how do you, how can you do it in a way that you do bring those people not together in agreement on almost anything else, but on clean tech? Sure. Well, that's what I meant when I said find cracks in the wall. I mean, the wall, the wall of opposition you know, for the for the rich money guys in D.C., the Koch brothers, et cetera, is oppose climate policy, roll back clean energy policy, support fossil fuels. But there are places in the country where clean energy has gotten a foothold now to the point where some Republican politicians, either because they see it as being in their constituents' interests or because you know, clean energy has gotten to be big enough to actually be a money, a, a, a player, a, a player in local politics or state politics. That's that's a crack in the wall. And I think I think it's absolutely smart to root, be absolutely opportunistic and ruthless about exploiting those cracks. Like what's going on in Georgia right now with the with the Green Tea Party, as you said, is an is an amazing opportunity. And I wish there was some sort of um, you know, what I wish was, if I was going to talk to, to foundations today, I wish there was an equivalent of Sierra Club's Beyond Coal campaign. You know, I hope everybody read the Politico magazine piece on uh, on the Beyond Coal campaign, which has just been fantastically successful. But it's been successful by, not by making a lot of noise nationally, but by swarming these local uh, you know these local fights where there's where there are are different uh, allies to be had and different political dynamics to be exploited, one after the other. I'd like the equivalent for uh, for rooftop solar. Like the, what's going on in Georgia right, should be, um, you know, like somebody should be down there learning from that and and making contacts and finding out what the dynamics are and trying to spread that to other conservative areas. Like there should be. You know, we should have, I feel like there should be an organization that is devoted to finding those cracks in the wall and exploiting them and finding out how to create new ones. But don't you think one of the things on the political piece, which I thought was most damning, was that they didn't mention Carl Pope and his partnership with Aubrey McClendon at Chesapeake. I mean, that's really what caused the Beyond Coal campaign to get legs, right? I mean, when he needed 20 million bucks, Aubrey McClendon stepped up and gave him money. Yeah, yeah, that's sort of an awkward fact fact in the closet. You know, they they disavowed that later, but you're right, it probably was the 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 kickstarting event, but they eventually found a a more ideologically acceptable billionaire to 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 fund them. I'm sure there's some sort of billionaire somewhere who who supports rooftop solar for uh, Oh yeah, but I just think that the enemy of my enemy is my friend strategy worked in this case, right? I mean, Aubrey really wanted to crush coal cuz he wanted us to burn more natural gas because he was going to frack a lot of it, right? I just think that that might be one of the answers, right? Is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend? Sure, yeah. In in context, in in context of these local battles, yeah, I think we should be open to allying with with anyone. It, but you know, it's it's always those things where you know you ride the tiger 
for a while, but you really got to know when to get off <laughs> before you get eaten. You know, it's a, uh, it takes some sensitivity to circumstances. You've, you've written a lot about sort of the ideological framework in which to think about climate policy in an earlier piece, you wrote, quote, the scale of response necessary to adequately address climate change is utterly outside the ideological frame of reference for the right. Being a climate hawk, an honest one, puts you on the left, whether you like it or not, and you might as well like it. And I, I'm, I'm <laughs> you know, I, I just, uh, so I'm one of these people who is a major advocate for action on climate change, but probably fall somewhere in the, in the center politically. And I tend to think that focusing on the regulatory aspect to make it easier to integrate clean energy um, rather than the blunt instruments of tax policy and mandates is one of the most effective ways of doing this, which itself is sort of an inherently right way to think about it. And I just like, uh, I'm just curious what you meant by by that. And, and if you still think that that's true, because I tend to think that like, there probably are a lot of Republicans out there who, through their desire to cut red tape, probably have some good policies, ideas for helping promote clean tech, assuming they can get over that ideological hump. Well, I mean, you have to distinguish two s spectrums, or spectra, two spectra. <laughs> um, you know, there's there's intellectually right and left positions, which have to do with, um, y y you know, uh, f you know, like fiscal conservatism is about the proper size and role of government and the effect of, of um, governments versus markets, all these sort of, you know, the sort of intellectual battle between right and left is, is one thing, but the actually existing left-right divide in the U.S. is a different thing. So, you, you know, this is what I think. This is what I think misleads a lot of people when they come to address politics, especially the politics of climate. Is they have in their head the conservative, a sort of mythological conservative, who has these sort of consistent, um, you know, intellectual views, but actually existing U.S. conservatism does not look anything like that. It's become a completely sort of tribal, um, identity-based movement that sometimes mentions those kind of principles in particular battles, but they don't have any, you, you know, you don't find them objecting to tax preferences that, 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 you know, benefit suburbs or, or, or cars or, you know, the sort of markers of their identity. So it, it's, I, I perfectly understand the, the sort of, um, the kind of centrist, intellectual position you describe, and, and there are certainly legitimate questions to be had about whether um, subsidies are the optimal instrument or whether, you know, tax policy is the right way to do policy or whether there are, you know, whether there are uh, measures you can take that fit within, intellectually speaking, conservatism. You know, like you say, like removing regulatory barriers, you would think, you would think conservatives would be all over that. Right. Like if conservatives cared about regulatory barriers as such, they would be all over that. But what they care about is they like their kind of energy and they hate Democrats kind of energy and anything that's going to help Democrats kind of energy. They're going to oppose. See, that's not principled. That's tribal. So so it's fine to have these you know, sort of conservative intellectual views. And I don't want to write those out of existence or dismiss them or say that they're wrong. Even I think they're 
interesting arguments to be had there. But that argument between what's the optimal policy, you know, taxing, regulating, spending, the right balance of those, that conversation is happening entirely within the left. There is no credible intellectual conversation about that happening on the right. The right has hardened into this sort of reflexive, knee-jerk opposition to government as such, government doing anything, you know, just the mention of government. It's just is bad and wrong. So it's, it's you know, you can, you can deal with the conservatism of the mind or you can deal with conservatism as it exists on the ground. And I actually think all the interesting intellectual discussions about climate policy from the right, center, and left are all happening, practically speaking, within the left in the U.S. It's, it's the left that's addressing this issue at all, having any sort of discussion about it at all. So, you know, I think those are perfectly legitimate ideological views. I just don't think you're going to find much. I don't think that actually allies you at all with actually existing U.S. conservatism. Could I ask you something about um, what you think about what might come out of Paris? Um, as we know, the GOP loves the French, seeing as how they changed French fries <laughs> to freedom fries. Um, so is there anything that you think that can come out of those negotiations that will be politically palatable to anybody um, in the GOP or, or, you know, really any politicians? Do you, what do you see coming out of Paris that might be useful? Well, there's... You know, two questions. One is the sort of overall result of Paris, and then the other question is what's going to come out that's relevant to the U.S. in particular. I actually think um, on climate talks, I know this is controversial, but I feel like for years and years, um, climate advocates have looked to these international discussions for breakthroughs, for big you know, for the big kahuna, the big sort of sweeping, binding international agreement, I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think it was ever going to happen. I actually think what's happening in climate talks these days is a sort of indication of the maturity of the process, not the failure of the process. And what's happening is we're letting go of this idea of the one sweeping treaty. and Instead, we're doing stepwise mostly voluntary commitments. You know, the countries are saying, this is the policy I'll pass. This is the effect it'll have. You know, and, and those and those commitments are not adding up yet to a full solution, but they are progress. They're steps being taken and they'll strengthen each other. So uh, I, in terms of what's going to come out of Paris, there's not going to be anything big and dramatic. What you're going to see come out of Paris is the same headlines you saw come out of the last 15 rounds of this, which is, Climate activists are disappointed. The commitments don't add up to a solution. Everyone's, you know, focus is now turning to the next round of climate talks. You know, like I could write all the headlines for this whole process in advance. But I actually think beneath that, there's interesting stuff going on, which is sort of smaller but more concrete and more measurable commitments. And as to the U.S., I mean... Nothing that comes out of Paris will influence what the U.S. does. The only thing that will matter in terms of what the U.S. does is who gets elected president in 2016. Well, this, this brings us back to the original point about what's turning some conservatives and sort of forcing them to, to, to look at these issues, and that is the relentless growth of clean tech and the improvement in um, you know, conventional renewables. And 
that's what's really helped boost a lot of these country level targets. They now feel comfortable enough to say, well, this is actually like an economic choice for us to make. Uh, so that has played a huge role in some of the bilateral negotiations and, and targets being set before Paris. Yeah, it's like you said earlier, it, 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 you know, inevitably in climate policy, you're asking politicians to take a pretty big leap of, you know, anytime you ask a politician to pledge something decades down the road, it's, it's scary to them because they want to see a, they want to see a path between here and there and what the growth of cl- clean tech has done, especially not even just where it is now, but the trajectory it's on has offered people a path. You can see now that getting from here to there is at least in the realm of the possible now. And, I, and, and, and you're right, that's reduced a lot of political resistance. David, do you think we've mentioned this a couple times in like the last two shows? Uh, do you think that if a Republican president proposed a lot of what Obama did, that Republicans would rally behind it? <laughs> well, I I think that um, Jerry Taylor is right. I interviewed this 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 libertarian Jerry Taylor uh, a, a few weeks ago, a couple months ago, and and he said. He made the point, and I think it's true that if you look at the at the sociological literature on public opinion, generally what you find is that what changes that that people follow elites. Basically, they look to the elites of their tribe for cues on 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 what to believe. So I think, as a general matter, if Republican elites swung around to support clean energy. Over time, yes, the, the Republican, Republican base would follow. Yes, I don't think a Republican would get sort of drummed out of, the, out of the party for that. But it's all about, you have to remember, it's all about priorities. And today's Republican Party is centrally devoted to reducing taxes on the wealthy. That's their, that's their sort of raison d'etre. And everything else, everything else is subordinate to that. So you have to ask, what, even if Republicans came around on the virtues of clean energy, say, you have to ask what credible clean energy policy can fit within that larger framework of their higher priorities, which is cutting taxes, rolling back regulations that exist now, and reducing, sharply reducing government spending. It's possible. I mean, I think you can think of some clean energy policies that could squeeze in there, but you just have to ask, like, what, what would it amount to? What would it, you know, there's just, my, my, my point has been, and this is what I said in the blog post I think you're referring to, is just that the, the, the idiot, ideology of the modern day U.S. right has gotten so hardened and knee-jerk that there's no room left in it for for po- credible policy on on clean energy there's no i mean you could you, policies yes individual policies yes but but uh in terms of the sort of massive movement we need the sort of massive industrial shift we need you just aren't going to be able to pull that off if you hate government taxing and government spending and government regulating those are the three things government do does, you know. And if you and if you were sort of knee jerk, instinctively opposed to government doing any of those things, 
then you're not going to, there is no room left in that ideology for serious, for the kind of policy we need. So I think it's going to have to be something more fundamental than one Republican or two Republicans saying, you know, we like solar after all, or we like wind after all. There's going to have to be a, a sharper, a bigger political shakeup than that before you get any sort of credible policy from the right on this stuff. David Roberts is a staff writer and columnist at Vox.com. Uh, fantastic writer. We'll link to some of his stuff on the podcast page. He joined us from Seattle. Thanks so much. This was uh, really fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Okay, a little break here to hear more about our podcast sponsor, Renesola. Renesola has been producing monocrystalline wafers since 2005 and has been manufacturing solar cells and modules since 2008. Uh, the company also manufactures and distributes inverters, LED lights, batteries, and mounting accessories, and it puts all these products together into a bundled solution for solar installers. Think about the savings in procurement and shipping costs you could realize by investing in Renesola's bundled offerings for residential systems. And the time that you could save is enormous as well. Renesola has coast-to-coast -coast warehouses across the U.S. and 40 worldwide subsidiaries. That means the products you need for your next project will get delivered to you the next day. Start your painless procurement at renesola.us. An immense pile of filth. That's what Pope Francis called our planet, or that's what it's turning into, he said. This week, the Pope issued an encyclical on climate change and the environment. An encyclical is a high-level teaching document to provide guidance for Catholics and also to a broader audience. And this most recent document is very strongly worded. It's, it's got a, a lot of people talking about its implications. I'll just read one quote here. Quote, a very solid scientific consensus indicates that we are presently witnessing a disturbing warming of the climatic system. Humanity is called to recognize the need for changes of lifestyle, production, and consumption in order to combat this warming, or at least the human causes which produce or aggregate it. The Pope has long talked about the need to address climate change. Uh, Pope Benedict as well did. Uh, but this document is, is groundbreaking in its depth. And the big question that everyone is asking now is, will it change the conversation in any way around climate, particularly for religious conservatives? My guess is that uh, David Roberts would say no. Catherine, how influential is this document? And, how, and, and will it have any impact on the political conversation here in the U.S., do you think? It's uh, a great question. So uh, Pope Francis looked historically at what popes have said over the last 50 years, and many of all of them have addressed environment, environmental issues in some way, and the need to uh, preserve, to, to be good stewards of creation. Um, this felt different, and, and I don't know if it will change the politics, but he definitely um, turns things around to, to, to move politics and economic arguments into a moral case and a case against the anthropocentrism that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Um, it's broad so that it speaks to across religions. Um, and it really says we are accountable. And those of us who are polluters are accountable for taking care of the people who are most affected by what we're doing, which are in general, those much more in poverty than others. I think um, he's really changed the conversation. So I'm really interested to see what happens. Not very many people are coming out and saying uh, they don't agree with the Pope. 
well, the Vatican is already calling out people like Jeb Bush and Rick Santorum for waffling on climate change. They're they're actually like directly getting involved in politics after this was released. It's quite fascinating to see. But not being a very religious person, I didn't really know much about encyclicals, so I had to read up on the history of them. And, you know, I was trying to figure out whether this really does have an impact throughout the church. And, you know, there have been previous encyclicals that have had major influence. So during the Industrial Revolution, there was one on um, sort of lower class rights, labor rights, um, the importance of forming unions, and that worked its way through the church and had an impact on the union movement in this country. Um, and there have been other examples like that. Um, so, of course, previous popes have talked about environmental issues, but never like this. And looking back at some of the historical examples, I think I was a little bit more convinced that this does have more influence throughout the church and perhaps beyond than I initially thought when I read it. Yeah, I reached out to Cassandra Carmichael, who's the executive director of the National Religious Partnership for the Environment. And that's a group uh, cross-cutting independent faith groups and every one of them. And so this covers Catholics, um, Church of Christ, uh, the Jewish Council, Evangelical Environmental Network, and then sort of this interfaith group that covers a lot of different um, faiths. And everybody is really on board with this and not even just that they agree with it, but that they want to talk about it in their congregations and in their communities. I think the part that was most interesting to me was how completely interwoven income inequality and some of those issues were into the encyclical. Um, I mean, he really is saying that the modern form of capitalism that's that's um, destroying the environment and that is practiced by America in 2015 is got to get changed, right? We have to figure out how to line up with the, you know, the environment, but also with figuring out how we, you know, allow a broader base of people to get involved in, you know, the, you know, the economy. And so I, I thought this was pretty amazing. And and what's really amazing about it is that all of the archbishops now are going to be teaching this at their sermons, right? So you will now have people who will be, you know, giving one-hour sermons on this um, around the world. And I do think that from an American-centric point of view, this feels a little bit, you know, weak. But I think we have to acknowledge that there are many countries around the world who are far more, you know, observant than the U.S. is. And I think you're going to see really vast changes in South America, for instance. Yeah, and I think when people hear it, um, even if they're not called to action, they'll start internalizing it. So I think it will, over time, cause behavior change. And also, there's a pack called American Bridge that's linking any of the critics to uh, Coke funding. So it's really interesting because they're they're actually linking it to you know who are the people who are making money off of off of wreaking the havoc on the planet and trying to hold them accountable and. Uh, having this document out there uh, is pretty stark. Uh, one Republican strategist certainly wasn't convinced, and he said, uh, those guys have already made up their minds on climate change, talking about uh, Republican leading Republican presidential candidates. For the real churchgoers, this is going to be an indictment of the Pope. 
So <laughs> many leading Republicans are uh, not convinced whatsoever, which is part of the reason why the Vatican has sort of called out individuals. Um, and there are a few different ways to look at this, or a couple different ways to look at this, for me at least. There is there's what we've been talking about, which is how influential this is throughout the church. And history would say that this does work its way throughout the Catholic Church and that teachings and practices are built upon it. Um, and then there's the influence on politics. And I just don't see any uh, Catholics or evangelical Protestants or you know any major religious conservatives um, changing their minds because of this. N- no candidate has reacted to this in a positive way on the Republican side. Um, but on the other hand, it does thrust the issue into the mainstream and journalists will ask more questions of the Republican candidates. So I think there's a benefit there. But so I, I it's clearly will have an influence in the church. I don't really see it having much influence in, in politics, aside from the fact that it will drum up more questions for religious conservatives who are running for national campaigns. But aren't you being short-sighted about this? I mean, you're being American-centric. I mean, first of all, we have listeners <laughs> from around the world. But second of all, I mean, that's where the growth is. The U.S. market's already at $40 billion a year of clean tech. Now, you know, maybe that number will get to 50. But I don't think we expect it to get to 200. Where we really expect the growth to come from is South America, parts of Africa, lots of places where the Catholic Church has huge amounts of sway. And, in, and a lot of the companies that we cover are actually already in those countries pushing as hard as they can. And the U.S. has already, you know, um, given money through OPIC and XM and others to support those projects. And I do think that now you're going to get a lot of these politicians in those countries who have been holding back clean energy, um, you know, like to to stop holding back clean energy. Yes, I am being very U.S.-centric here, so noted. Um, And speaking of the U.S., this encyclical did come just a few months before the Pope will be here in the United States talking to Congress. Yes, a joint session. That will be very interesting, watching who's clapping at what he's saying. Indeed. Let's go on to our third topic, concentrating solar power, Jigger's favorite technology. First, it was endangered tortoises, then it was flaming birds, and now it's lower than expected electricity output. The 392-megawatt Ivanpah concentrating solar power plant located in uh, California's Mojave Desert, has faced a lot of problems since its inception. Last year, we saw reports about Ivanpah underperforming, and many months later, the plant is still facing troubles. It's only producing 40% of the electricity expected. Uh, Meanwhile, in Arizona, the 280-megawatt Solana power plant built by Abengoa is also producing about half of expected electricity. Is this another blow for struggling technology, or are these fixable problems? Jigger, what's your read on the problems at these two plants? Well, I think the first place you have to start is just to know that this power plant is not solar PV, right? So it's more along the lines of a thermal power plant. And thermal power plants really do take three, four years to work out the kinks. I mean, you look at nuclear power plants, it took them 10 years to get to any modicum of where they expect it to be in terms of full production. So... It's not surprising to me that this plant is taking a long time to get to full output. Like that's, to me, totally normal for thermal power plants. I think the part that is so upsetting for me is that we sort of allowed, I think, um, as a movement, this plant to sort of be some sort of bellwether when 
I mean, I've been saying for years that this technology should just be dead and we should put a stake in the heart and be over with it. But DOE, other journalists, others have sort of like said, well, let's see how this plant performs and let's put it up to the test. And if it fails us, then, you know, I think we've we've put ourselves out there a little bit. Yeah, but so to your first point about working out the kinks, you know, Arizona Public Service is not unhappy because they said this is kind of what we expect and we're going to kind of keep going and see what happens. But also it seems that some of the numbers were not are are not completely accurate in the Wall Street Journal article. So EIA shows that Ivanpah generation was up 170% from 2014. So it looks like it's on the right trajectory. Um, and so over time, it will continue to, the capacity factor will continue to go up. Another thing to note about these, this type of technology is that there is a storage element to it. And the storage technology isn't valued. Um, the service for that isn't valued. And I feel like once that is able to get compensation uh, for the benefits the storage provides, that that, that will help the cost effectiveness proposition. Yeah, but Catherine, I think you're grasping for straws on the storage piece. I'm not suggesting you're not right that storage has a value, but I am suggesting that when you look at the cost declines of the storage that California is currently putting out there of 1,300 megawatts worth, et cetera, I think that the Ivanpah project is getting paid, you know, something on the order of like 12 cents a kilowatt hour for this power. I mean, you have to believe that part of that is going for storage since solar PV would have just been you know, six or seven cents. But people have jumped all over this, man. This is yet another like talking point for the people who want to show that the the DOE was making bad investments and people have really latched on to these lower performing plants as like the next Solyndra. But this is why I was so passionate about saying this was dead in a previous podcast so that you guys could all reference that podcast and know that I like (laughs) said that at that time. I, I was trying to inoculate ourselves from this. Yeah, of course. I knew you. We knew you would say that <laughs> this time around too. But honestly, Solyndra never built anything and never generated electricity. These are actually generating. I mean, this is technical issues, um, some resource issues. But I mean, this is a new technology. This is what happens. And maybe it won't work in the end. But it's it's worth checking it out and trying it and see if it will. Jigger, do you think that these plants will be like the one like relics, like the ones that we built in the eighties? Right, just like the Kempner, you know, CCS plant down in Mississippi. I think that, as Catherine said, I think this is precisely what the loan guarantee program was for. So I am not upset about the fact that the DOE put money into it and did loan guarantees and the plant was built. I think that's fine. But I think we should all acknowledge that none of us believe, at least I don't believe, that there's an even 0.1% chance that this technology will have a real future in our energy mix in terms of solving climate change. And so I think we're, this was a great effort and we should like allow for Kempner and for, you know, Ivanpah and these things to get built, but we should not take from this that this thing can be fixed. I mean, this was a dead end. All right. Well, I think that about wraps it up. And uh, dear listeners, we will tell you something you do not know now. Jigger, what is your story this week? So there was a story this week last week about how solar power now makes up about 1% of all global electricity production. Um, And then separately, Shell oil executives have talked about how the first 1% market share takes about 30 years. And it did in the solar, in the case of solar as well, 
but that because of exponential growth, that in fact getting to 10% is going to be 10 years away. So, um, so I, I think this is a huge milestone. The fact that we hit 1% means that we are now completely and utterly off to the races. Yeah. Did you see our global demand report? Like where GTM Research is projecting 135 gigawatts of demand in 2020 globally. It took us awesome. like 40 years to get to 100 gigawatts, and then we'll install that in one year in 2020. Awesome. And that will, and that could perhaps be half of all new generating capacity worldwide. Yeah. Catherine, what's your story this week? I have two things. Uh, one is not serious, but fun, which is that Hot Wheels and Matchbox are coming out with uh, exact one sixty-fourth size Model S Teslas for a buck, which is what I can afford right now for a car. <laughs> um, so I'm totally psyched. One of my kids just graduated from elementary school, and he's still really into Hot Wheels. So that's on the list. Um, and the second thing is Green Alternatives, which, as you remember, we had Erica Mackey on, and she started this uh, nonprofit a, about a decade ago, and she just had her third baby, too. Um, they had a Baltimore launch. Nicole Steele is the executive director of the Mid-Atlantic chapter of GRID, and they did it in the CARE neighborhood, the CARE neighborhood standing for Caring Active Restoring Efforts, and it's one of those really in-need neighborhoods in East Baltimore. The ABLE Foundation contributed. Civic Works is providing a workforce. Um, it, it was so exciting. I went to their launch yesterday. They had two TV cameras there. Um, a lot of incredible workforce ready to go, including the homeowner. And, you know, the homeowners get on the roof in these cases, too. And he was all in. So it was terrific. Great Alternatives is so awesome. Yeah, they are. They, they're such a great organization. And everyone I've met over there has, has really been passionate about the cause. So kudos to them. Uh, speaking of your little Tesla gadget there, I'll talk about a little gadget. Uh, well, it's not really a gadget. Neither of them are gadgets, but they're things that you can buy in a store. LED bulbs I'm going to talk about. And, uh, you know, think about four or five years ago, LEDs, a 60-watt equivalent LED was like $45. And now GE just released a new 60-watt equivalent LED for, you can get three of them for 10 bucks. Crazy. Like, you can now get an LED bulb for cheaper than a compact fluorescent bulb. And uh, prices are continuing to come down, and we continue to see innovations in, in cost reductions um, and performance and light quality. And uh, so, you know, th we talk about the, the crash in solar prices, but there's been an equal crash in LED prices. And think about that, a $45 bulb going down to just a few bucks. And the two of them together is the reason why I'm so hopeful that, you know, 2 billion people around the world are going to get access to electricity and light um, over the next, you know, decade. Yeah, absolutely. Better LEDs, mobile payment platforms, and the falling cost of solar. That That is the trifecta right there. With that, it is time to go. Thank you so much to Renesola for sponsoring this show. As always, we just really appreciate their support. We've got links to all sorts of goodies that we discussed on this show on our podcast page at greentechmedia.com slash podcast. If you're checking us out on the web, do us a favor and leave us a review at iTunes or Stitcher Radio. It's an awesome way to help spread the word. And if you want to connect with us, send an email to podcasts at greentechmedia.com. I do try my best to, to answer all the emails we get, but it can be tough. Email is crazy, and we get a lot of emails. So apologies if it takes a little while, but we love hearing from you, and we do take your feedback seriously. 
Next week, we will be live at our very own Grid Edge Live conference in San Diego. So come say hello there. Check us out. Um, or check us out right here on the Energy Gang feed after we record. Catherine, see you next week. Safe travels. Thanks very much. And everybody, this Sunday is Father's Day, so hug a father. Indeed. And Jigger, good luck at the library. Are you going to go read any good books? What, what are you going to do there? <laughs> I think uh, my nieces are tired of playing and want to take a nap, so we're probably going home and taking a nap. <laughs> Enjoy the nap. Uh, safe travels. We'll see you <laughs> next week at, at Grid Edge Live. Uh, good show. With Jigger Shaw and Catherine Hamilton, I'm Stephen Lacey, and we are The Energy Gang, a production of GreenTechMedia.com. We'll catch you next week.